The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome back, everyone. I know it's not easy in our busy lives to stick to things, but I'm really happy to see those of you who have stuck to it so that you can get a sense of the practice. And, of course, to really get a sense, you have to put a little time in at home every day or most days. Even if you're at the end of the day, you've got your pajamas on, your teeth are brushed, you're tired, still go to that chair, to that cushion where you've been practicing at home, compose yourself, and do a few minutes. Because part of what you're doing is you're learning, like in the great diversity of intentions you have in your heart and mind, things you you might want to do, you're finding this intention to be awake, to be mindful, right? And you're keeping your attention on that intention and you're acting on it. And so then you get better at it, right? We get better at the intentions we act out. In neuroscience, they say, how does it go now? Um, something about things that happen together, wire together. Anybody know that? It's not quite it. Forgetting it. Fire together, wire together. Thank you. Yeah. So when, in terms of like our neural brain activity, things that fire together, that arise together, that are linked together, then they get wired together. So then the mind associates those things. So we're trying to wire this new habit of sitting down, And learning to appreciate that, learning to be grateful for that, learning to see some positive changes, whether it's more tranquility, more equanimity, more resilience. Uh, When insults come our way, difficult experience comes our way, more resilient, less pushed around by the ups and downs, then we're associating that with the sitting practice, right? And it's just becoming part of the new habit of the mind. Oh yeah, I really value that. There are a number of things we don't have to think about, we just do every day. This can be one too. And of course, the formal sitting time really supports the arising of mindful awareness just naturally through the day. It's like we're planting seeds then that take root, sprout, when we're out at the cashier register or at the walking from our car to our job site or whatever it might be. We'll just notice, oh yeah, it's like this now. This is being known. Walking's being known or thinking's being known. So let's take a little time um, to check in, see what you've been learning in your practice. Remember you can share about walking meditation, standing meditation, sitting meditation, daily life practice, be really nice to hear your work with a particular meditation anchor. I know some of you are working with hearing. Maybe most of you are working with the breath, as I described in the instructions tonight. What gets in the way of the continuity of awareness? What have you noticed gets in the way of the continuity of mindful awareness? How do you return? What have you learned about when you notice you're distracted about how to come back to the present moment. What have you found works? What have you found doesn't help? 
And really, any questions about the practice, posture would be good to bring up at this time. And if you don't mind, you can say your name too. So anybody like to begin? What have you been learning in your sitting practice, in your walking practice? My name is Kelly, and it's not so much a uh, what I've learned, but a question. We keep talking about the breath and paying attention to that. Am I supposed to try and clear my mind eventually or paying attention to what's in my body or the breath? I'm getting kind of confused. Yeah. So as the primary object, or sometimes we call it the anchor, we're developing a new skill. And we have it to some degree, but we're practicing being interested, like recognizing the breath as sensation, not the thought of the breath, not a mental image of the breath, right? Noticing the breath as sensation and tracking it, so not just knowing it and then going back into thought, but knowing that first moment, let's say, of the in-breath and then sustaining the interest, the awareness of the breath, the sensations of the breath, all the way through the in-breath and noticing that little gap before the out-breath begins and then the beginning of the out-breath So that continuity of mindful awareness with the sensations of the breath, if you're doing that fully, can you be thinking, worrying, planning, judging, wondering if you're doing a good job at mindfulness of breathing? You can't. Because when the mind really gives itself to one thing, when the knowing or the attention of the mind gives itself to one thing wholeheartedly, then everything else momentarily, or for moments at least, has to be dropped. So you'll find that instead of thinking, I have to stop thinking, using thought does not lead to the ending of thought, we just practice giving the attention to things. So maybe we're there with the in-breath, there with the out-breath, there with the in-breath, and then there's a disturbing sound in in the room. And then we're aware of that. Oh, hearing, just hearing. And you might even use words like I just said in your mind. Oh, hearing. It's just hearing being known. But those are thoughts that are turning the attention back to this non-conceptual awareness of hearing as hearing. Sensation as sensation, right? So the reason we initially make a... And it takes... You can see, it takes some real effort. But it's a very particular kind of effort. It's not a muscular effort. It's the effort of remembering to recognize the in-breath, remembering to recognize the out-breath, remembering to feel pain in the knee, the sensations of the knee pain, or the hearing, or the seeing. And if we do, if there are a lot of thoughts, then we notice that not in terms of the content of the thought, we're not worried about comprehending what the thought is, but just that there is thought. There is thought being known. So there's that mental activity, thinking is being known. right? And if you can discern, oh yeah, it's, it's judging thoughts, or it's worrying thoughts, or it's planning thoughts, or imagining the future, or worrying about the past. So you might just sort of get the general sense, but you're not interested, you're not training your mind to be interested in the content of thought. But just, there are six things that are happening. Thinking, sensation, seeing, hearing, tasting, and smelling. And I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but 
Is there ever anything more to life than these six things being known? If so, what do you think that is? Remember an experience that was more than just these six things being known. Mental activity being known, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, and tasting being known. That's it. It's never more than that. And initially we use a lot of this, especially the sensations, hearing, seeing to a lesser degree, because it's easier to let the thinking go into the background, to the periphery, and even quiet down and even drop away. But we're not making it drop away. We're giving, in a sense, giving the attention to the knowing of the sensations of breathing in and breathing out, or giving the attention to the experience of hearing, or the experience of seeing, or just the experience of feeling the whole body. And then that really breaks the mind's, the attention's addiction or attachment to thought. Because normally we're just living our life with our reality mediated by our thoughts, right? Colored, controlled in a way, governed by concept. So we need to break that spell. And that's what the initial training is. So don't worry about your thoughts, but practice connecting and sustaining attention in the present moment. With And I recommend generally hearing, the actual sensations of breathing, or whatever's predominant as sensation in the body. But you'll notice with the breath, I very quickly go to the instruction breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. While, while you're feeling the breath going out and you're aware of the sensations of the exhalation, practice feeling the whole body right there. That whole body awareness is really useful to cultivate right from the beginning because it makes it easier to practice during the day. Because as we're living our life and doing everything, that whole body awareness is a really good anchor to sustain the awareness, the mindful awareness throughout the day. We can keep coming back, even in the middle of an argument with someone where we're really in the concepts attached. In a moment with practice, you can be 100% in the body. Oh, sensation, sitting, is like this. And then that means in that moment that you're aware of the body, you've put down the argument that this person's a jerk and I need to tell this person. Because you can't be aware of the body and still tracking the argument or why this person is so bad. You have to momentarily put it down. So then if you do, which you probably will, pick the argument back up, it's fresh. And you know what you notice when you're picking it up fresh? It really hurts. Right? The you know, the hatred, the anger, the self-righteousness, the charge of that, it hurts. But when you're in the middle of arguing, you forget that, right? But if you put it down for a moment, oh yeah, sitting's like this, hearing's like this, seeing's like this, and then you get drawn back into it, then you can the contrast really shows you, oh yeah, this isn't skillful at all. Right? The mind, the heart, body, it's really it's laying down layers of stress that we'll have to unwind at some point. And so it's just we learn so much if we can live more and more of our life from this place of embodiment, intimacy with the body. So that's why if you don't have any clarity on your own, then just use the breath as your primary anchor 
And very quickly, once you're able to track, feel the actual sensations of breathing, like the touching at your nostrils as the air comes in and out, or the ordinary feeling of the belly rising and falling with the breath, right? Then very quickly, as you're able to track that, then notice as you're feeling the belly rise, expand, feel the whole body right there. Whatever you feel. Don't, you're not like trying to feel the whole body. You're just realizing that as you're feeling the belly rise, all the other sensations that can be known are right there. So it's just like, more than anything, it's more of a relaxation, realizing that the sensations of the belly rising are there with all the other sensations of the body. And then the sensations of the, of the belly falling, all the whole body's right there. And that all-inclusive awareness of body really helps for the body to calm down. And when the body calms down, the mind feels lighter. And when the mind feels lighter, then real happiness and ease of the heart begins to dawn. Ah, ah. And things, the mind then becomes tranquil. So there's a, there are a lot of good reasons to move towards this whole body awareness as your primary anchor. And it's specifically in the direction of non-conceptual awareness. So when we're aware of the whole body, we're aware of it not as an image, a mental-like picture of the body, and not in terms of the thoughts I have about my body. They may be there in the periphery because we got a lot of habit of always thinking about what's happening. But now we're training to be aware of sensation in and of itself. So like if you touch something, just put your hand on something. (coughs) Everyone aware of the touch? So I'm touching the lectern here. I feel the temperature of the wood. I feel the smoothness of the wood, right? There's a certain softness even to the wood. Now, those are words, right? But the actual contact, the actual pressure you're feeling right now, you see, you don't need that experience to be mediated by your language, do you? Or any concept, or even an image, mental image of what your hand is touching. You see, the actual experience of sensation is non-conceptual. You get that? That's what we're doing with the breath. And if, if you really give yourself to that experience, you see, you have to, your whole world of concept disappears. Like even the idea, I'm Mark and I'm at Common Ground Meditation Center, that and that kind of creates a little container, right? But that has to go away when you're just immersed in the knowing of sensation. So it's not a small thing to be of the, aware of the breath in and of itself, just a sensation, and then going out in and of itself. That first, what we say, you know, really the first step in meditation, it's a big step to put down the world of thought. So mostly what's going to happen is we'll be present in a, fully intimate way for a moment or two and then there'll be a little thought like oh I'm really getting it you know and then we'll all of a sudden that whole world of being somebody at Kamgra Meditation Center who's never been good at anything in his whole life is finally doing something good you know whatever the whole and then the charge emotional charge that goes with the story but then hopefully we'll remember or somebody will give you the instruction oh no just be aware of the breath in and of itself coming in and then you'll open to that. Remember, you know, in this wholehearted way, remembering, oh, this is being known. It's just this, these sensations being known. 
And then that whole world of self, self-drama, whether you're good or bad, whether you like it or don't, again, that will have to fall away for a moment or two. That will characterize our early experience where we have moments of being present and then moments of thinking about being present, <laughs> thinking about meditation. But thinking about meditating is not meditation. It's thinking. But we do a lot of that when we're in the meditation pose. We're there thinking about our practice, thinking about how it's going well or how it's not going well or why isn't it going well. Or, And then, of course, there are the other times when we're just lost in thought that has nothing to do with meditation. Planning the day, thinking about yesterday, thinking about being on retreat, on a meditation retreat. You know, it's like, it's funny how that is. People spend a lot of time and money going on retreat, and some of their time is spent thinking about their next retreat when they're on retreat, <laughs> instead of being in the present moment. So thanks for bringing that up. It was, it was good to share some of this information from your comment and question. Other thoughts? What have you been learning that you'd like to share with the group? It's really helpful to hear from people, <coughs> just to be honest. Yeah, please, just share the mic, pass the mic over, person in the check shirt. I'm Kip. As I drive through the community, I get a chance to see flags furling and unfurling. And uh, that takes me to a good place. Yeah. It's interesting thing about certain visual experiences, let's say, but it happens also in terms of sound and sensation. But there's something about things happening on their own and, in a sense, effortlessly, like seeing the fluttering of leaves, seeing the fluttering of the light on the lake or the ocean, or even the white noise sounds of wind sound or surf sound. Other sounds can be that way. Even if you're in a place where there's a lot of talking, like you go to the Mall of America or a bus depot, but you're not listening to any one conversation. You're sort of sitting back and hearing. Because those experiences um, are basically a vehicle for the mind to let go. Because our mind is in the habit of fixating. It's sort of turning every experience into a concrete idea. Like if if while seeing the flag fluttering in the wind, your mind said, oh, that's a flag fluttering in the wind, and the mind then, in a sense, gripped on that, you know, I should get a flag that's fluttering the wind. (laughs) Then it's not going to be a useful experience. But if you see the fluttering, and then the mind notices, see, there's something about the fluttering that is um, archetypal about the whole world, which is, Everything's in motion. This is just an obvious example of it. Same with the fluttering of light on the lake or the movement of surf or many other. It reminds the mind that things aren't actually things. There is no noun anywhere. You know, when we use a noun like cushion, mark, Kamgram Meditation Center, the concept, Kamgram Meditation Center, flag, sort of makes it a permanent set thing. But everything's in motion. And one of the things you'll start to sense as you feel the breath, as you feel sensation, even as you notice thought, 
without getting caught in the content of the thought is you'll notice the flow. It's like a river. Absolutely everything is like a river. And when the mind trusts that, doesn't resist it, then all of a sudden it gets a taste of freedom. And the Buddha says that taste of freedom is unforgettable. It's like you can't get it out. When you really get a good gulp, whiff of it or something, taste of it, you can't forget it, which is good. Because we start becoming more and more suspicious of all of the ways our thinking mind, our conceptualizing mind, freezes things up. You know, it's like if you have a partner or a good friend, and then, oh yeah, that's when. That's the name of my wife. Oh, that's when. Well, the concept, the name, and then the concept, the identity my mind has, really keeps me from meeting her as a fluttering flag. Because she's also not a thing. She's an unfolding process, right? A changing process. But if I you know, make her fit my idea, we're not going to have a nice interaction tonight when I go home. But if I'm in that more mindful, aware place, then she'll be the activity of nature, a river, a flow of mind and body, you know, that we call, you know, my partner, my wife, my sweetheart. But those words are pointing to something that can't be contained by a concept or, or, or an idea. Right? And little things will just, it will just, you know, for one person it might be seeing a flag, but it was probably due to one moment seeing that flag where your mind was in this stable, calm, clear place, and you realize something about the nature of all things, but you thought it was about the flag being special. But it's never about the ocean side. It's never about the lake. It's never about the sound of wind through the leaves or pine needles. It was that the mind woke up to something that's always true. And now with practice, you start to feel this with your breath and body. Like one of the most obvious places where we have this, the, the effect of concept is we have this idea of my body. My body's heavy. It's hard. It, it has you know, it's solid. But the more you meditate and the more you trust this simple, clear, mindful awareness, you'll see that the actual reality of body is what we say, you know, in English is sensation. But sensation is a flow. It's a river. So the idea of weight is an idea. Even the idea of shape, it's like when you close your eyes and you feel your body, the picture you have of your body is not your experience, right? So close your eyes, be aware of your body as sensation. Now your habit of having a mental image and imposing that mental image on your experience of sensation, of course that will be there, but don't get fooled. That's, that's a mental image, right? Just feel sensation. Now, does sensation have shape? No. There's no shape. It's like just vibration and hardness and softness and coolness and warmth and smoothness and roughness. Dancing, right? Do you get that? But we have a big habit of pushing, in a sense, the mental image, which has shape and location and you know this all this baggage, basically. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It was nice to hear. 
Hi, my name is Sean. Um, when you asked earlier, maybe what some experiences that um, we were finding with practice, I want to thank you. I think um, one thing that I'm starting to be aware of is, is, is when I'm directing breathing versus when I'm observing breathing. It's a really big um, thing, and it's kind of like surfing. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't quite stay on the observing consistently without that inner critic or, or that image of what I'm supposed to be doing. Or but, the habit to control things. Yeah, but I, I, I can extrapolate from that experience, and I can see when, you know, when, when I'm directing, you know, my kids, you know, raising them, parenting them versus just sort of being with them. You know, I mean, it feels like a little bit of a put on, but it also kind of feels. Now there's some truth there. But yeah. it feels kind of good, too. Now, I have I have one. You also asked about anchors and I've never heard this. I've we've never I've never heard anybody talk about it. But there's there's an anchor that I have that I think really works for me. And I hope it's not counter uh, to what we're trying to do here. But when I close my eyes. It, it doesn't look like um, just solid black. Mm-hmm. I have like colors, like yeah. they like mm-hmm. static or abstract shapes. Mm-hmm. It's and like a fluttering just, of the flag. Yeah. You know, the kind of play of light or color. And I'm just interested in them. I can't direct them. I can't change them. I can't tell what color they are. Mm-hmm. And this is sounding really weird as I say it out loud, but it, it feels like it relaxes me. It, it does help get rid of those other thoughts because I'm just genuinely interested in what this experience is I'm seeing it's I'm not visualizing or imagining things mm-hmm. but um, but that's that's been a really useful anchor just to sort of get rid of some of those voices and, and uh, the directors and stuff and yeah and focus on just one experience I'm having yeah I think it's okay and but you might want to maintain the rhythm of breath with it so breathing in aware of seeing. Breathing out, aware of seeing. The, but I'm not saying you have to do that, but experiment. Because the one thing about seeing is seeing more than the other sense gates is very much aligned with thinking. You know, we, it's sort of the, it's like when I look, it's very hard for me to see without concepts immediately being there. Like when I look at the black cushions, I can do it. I can see just shape and color, form. But the concept of cushion is right there. So even though this is more abstract with the scene with your eyes closed, the mind might still be conceptualizing colors, right? Or abstract colors or whatever. Or some kind of liking, some subtle manipulation. So you want to be aware of that. But basically, any sense gate is suitable for mindful awareness as an anchor. There's really no right or wrong. It's it's really more a question as one, what the mind likes, because it's okay to use what your mind likes and isn't seductive, isn't going to draw the mind into thinking, right? And then reacting, or where one thought's leading to another. And so that's what you have to see. Now, from how you described it, it doesn't sound like that's happening. No, that the awareness of the seeing, right? Awareness of the visual field, is it leading into thinking? Where you're thinking about the visual field as opposed to, in a sense, opening to it, seeing it. 
And what you're going to want to notice too, if there's pleasantness there, you want to notice that too. Seeing pleasant. Pleasantness is that I feel calm, and then I can. It's more difficult to think about the to to the breathing without mm-hmm. thinking. But once I sort of settle into that for a while, then I can sort of turn my attention to, you know, what my sit bones feel like, or, yeah. or if I feel a breeze, or if there's hearing that I'm also getting while I'm while I'm watching that. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds really good. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, please. Um, my name is Maria, and I'm just having a hard time uh, being awake when I'm meditating. So I choose to start meditating with my eyes open. So what is going on right now is there is too much information, and I don't know what to do with all yeah. of that. You know, um, I'm I'm calm. My my breath my breathing is okay, but it's just like you said, like oh, cushion, people, um, hair, um, everything. But so you could sit uh, facing like a wall. So turn your chair basically like where you are, but turn your chair around like at home. I mean, it will be weird here. <laughs> But you get a person who's really big in front of you, and then you look at their back. <laughs> you know, just and don't get a plaid shirt because it will make your eyes buggy. But something, right? Because you know, like I don't know if you've ever sat at any of the Zen centers, but that's often what they'll do is during retreats, especially, is you face either a screen, a blank screen, because they practice with their eyes open usually, and or you face the wall. And uh, but a, a nature setting can also work. So you could sit close enough to the window that all you're seeing is maybe some trees off in the background or something like that, or literally at home face a wall. So there's no, you don't want to be looking at something that's cluttered. It should be very neutral if you're going to practice with your eyes open. But I'm really glad you brought up the sleepiness because. Raise your hand if at least part of the time sleepiness is a serious obstacle in your sit. See, you're not alone. It is a formidable obstacle to meditation. Now, the easy part is most of you aren't getting enough sleep. So, because I'm so wise, I'll tell you the solution. Get more sleep. (laughs) Right? I know that's not easy, but at least the solution is easy. You know, it's not easy to practice if you're not getting enough sleep because half of the work we're doing is calming down. That's half of it. And so if you're sleep deprived and you calm down, that very deep primal instinct is, gosh, I'm I'm calm. This would be a great time to go to sleep, (laughs) right? And that's what your mind will do. So you have to make sure you're getting enough sleep. And then even that, though, won't make this go away because there are well-practiced meditators, people who have been meditating for a long time, who are getting enough sleep, who have a serious problem with sleepiness when they're meditating. And the short answer to why is um, that the mind has gotten good at tranquilizing itself, but it hasn't gotten as good at being interested. So we have the acronym RAIN, and RAIN really, the four... Uh, instructions in RAIN to recognize and allow, accept, to be intimate and interested and non-attachment. You could really put them into two groups. 
So the recognized and the interest or more of the active, assertive qualities of the mind that we need and the allow and the non-attachment are more of the receptive, yielding. Some people like to say masculine and feminine, right? Masculine for the assertive, active, feminine for the receptive, yielding. But, you know, that just has a lot of baggage. But And the thing is, we all have these capacities and we need these capacities in order to be mindful. So for people who tend to have a lot of restlessness, you can probably guess, you want to develop more of the um, accepting, the allowing, and the non-attachment. For people who tend to be sleepy, you want that very assertive move to clearly recognize what's predominant. And the interesting thing is, when we ask the mind to do that assertive work, honey, so like you're talking to your mind, honey, what's the mind knowing? What are you knowing? What's the mind knowing now? Oh, this is being known. And you can even name it, you know. It's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, I didn't know what to do with all these information. So I was like, uh, the caution is known. Um, everything that uh, went into my mind or into my attention, I was just naming it. Good. And start, I, I didn't, I tried to avoid thinking beyond that. Yeah, beyond yeah. what I was So you give watching. your thinking a very narrow place to do its job, to support the continuity of awareness. And what you might add on to the naming of it is, is being known. So seeing, you know, seeing is being known. Hearing is being known. Reacting is being known. Like getting tight is being known. Sitting, you know, and you could even be more specific if you want to name it, you know, Pressure, contact is being known. Feel the air against the skin. Touching is being known. Worrying is being known. And actually the emphasis is is on the last half, is being known. That actually turns out to be more relevant, more interesting to the mind, that it's just something being known. And then after you get into the rhythm, you may not always need to name it. You might just go, this is being known. Because... What's important is that assertive move where the awareness is making contact with what's predominant. This is something being known. It's just something being known. This is something being known. Right? And so that interest, like I'm willing to be intimate. I'm willing to, I care enough to connect. The awareness, the knowing, the attention to connect. Oh yeah, this is being known. This is being known. And that work to connect is will energize the mind. Now, this is such an interesting principle. We think, well, gosh, I need energy to do that. But the truth is, we get the energy when we make effort. Have you ever noticed that? You're dead after a hard day at work. You're lying there in a stupor on your couch thinking, oh, my God, I can't do a thing. And then a friend calls you and they say, you know, hey, you want to go to... And then you, you start doing, you know, get ready, get your clothes back on, and all of a sudden you have a lot of energy, right? But there's nothing better at making yourself sleepy than doing nothing. And there's nothing more energy than energizing than doing something, you know, just giving the mind something to do. And it sounds like you discovered that on your own by asking the mind to do this naming. Now, 
you can literally name or make a mental note, as you mentioned, which is a really useful technique to use from time to time. But whether you do that mental note, mental label, or just notice moment to moment what's predominant, that's the important thing, is the activity of noticing. And one way you can make sure you're noticing what's predominant is name it. As this person, I forgot your name already, said. Maria. Yeah, thanks, Maria. Really good comments. Do we have a little bit more time to hear from one or two more people? Yeah, first here, and then we'll go over here to Scott. Hi, my name is Maggie. Um, I'm not sure if I have a question or just a comment, but what I've noticed is the way that my body settles during a sit. I'll be like, oh, my shoulder twitched. Oh, and like I... It's kind of like, oh, the cushion is black. But then I get to a point where my body will sometimes settle into positions that are not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that a little bit last week. What do you do with that? And I guess if I have a question at all is, should I set the time for the sit to be less than I know it will take to get to that uncomfortable point? Yeah, or a little bit beyond that, because we learn so much once it gets uncomfortable. Now, it is okay to do minor changes while you're sitting. I mean, stillness is a very useful training mechanism. So once you've sort of settled in, you know, after a minute or two, and then it's really nice to have this value solid in the heart. You know, honey, let's just be still here. Let's just be relaxed in this. But, you know, if, if you're sort of were lost in thought and while you were lost in thought, you kind of did something like a slump and the chin went down, head went forward, and that, then you realize, then you might want to just, but you, you could do that in mindfulness, right? Being aware that you've made that adjustment. So it's okay to do minor adjustments when you need to. Just be aware that you're doing them and notice the effect. It does change things when you move. But then there's the bigger point that after a while the body really wants to move, like if the knee hurts or the back hurts or whatever. But it's good, to, if you can, to time your sits, to set a certain amount of time so you have a little bit of that more, I don't know, extreme is too big of a word, but more intense pain for a few minutes because you'll realize that actually it's workable. A lot of it is workable. It just seems like it isn't workable. And so you want to just... And now then your primary object might disappear and the painful sensations might need the need to be the primary object because they're going to be the biggest thing arising in the moment. So then it's like breathing in, feeling the aching or the twisting or the burning in the knee, breathing out, feeling these sensations, right? And you're aware of the unpleasantness. Oh, this is just unpleasantness being known, unpleasantness being known. Can this be okay? You could this, that would be a good time to play with the rain. Be lighthearted. Oh, can the mind is the mind willing to recognize what's predominant? Oh yeah, throbbing, throbbing, throbbing. Is the mind willing to allow it, to accept it, to soften with it? Right? Can it be interested? Be really intimate with it. Can it see it as the activity of nature, not self, so non attachment? It's just pain being known just throbbing being known. It's just the natural movement of causes and conditions. Uh, when you hold still with this body this long, then there, these sensations arise. Yeah. 
Thanks. Scott, did you have a comment? So yeah, my name's Scott. Um, I've noticed during my sits, there's a couple of things I'm doing that sort of feel like cheating in a way, and I guess I wanted some feedback on that. Of One is, when I've noticed my mind is wandering and I want to go back to the breath, I take a deep breath because that way there's more sensation to pay attention to, and that makes it much easier. But also, you know, you talk about how it's about awareness of the breath, not controlling the breath. So that feels a little like cheating, even though it really helps pull me back. Yeah. The other thing I'm doing is, and I think you've mentioned this in guided meditations, which is why I started doing it, is like accepting and releasing on the in-breath and the out-breath, just sort of thinking those two words, because for me it's really helpful to not, it sort of drowns out all of the other random thoughts that would pop up if I have something to think about, but then again, yeah. I'm thinking about those two words, so it yeah. doesn't quite feel like awareness, so I'm trying to, you know, is that a sort of a useful crutch when I'm just starting out? Is that like cheating, or should I try and avoid those, or? Yeah. And I think I mentioned this week once, but it's really worth uh, restating, which is the way I present the practice has some shadows to it. So in some ways, like they give the example, I practiced in Burma for five months once as a monk, Buddhist monk, and, and at the monastery where I was practicing, there were a lot of young people as well as older people. And um, it was always said that the people who do best or the younger women, you know, teenage, uh, like 17-year-olds. And the reason is that Burma, still, to a large degree, is a very patriarchal culture. And so, and because it was, you know, I don't know if you know about the recent history of Burma, but, you know, it's been run by the military for many decades. And so the the top of the heap, heap in terms of prestige are the Buddhist monks, not not the business people, not the military leaders, but they're like the coolest people, right? And it's a patriarchal place. And so the these powerful males tell these younger women, you know, do this, and they do it. And so they get the best results because they just follow the instructions, you know, and, the, you know, in terms of awakening and enlightenment and all the sort of fruits of the practice, it happens because it but that's not how, I don't just tell you, because we don't have that set up here, you know. I could come to have a higher platform and say, just do this thing. So instead, the way you get instructions here is you're getting this real array of skillful means. And so the shadow is it can be confusing. Like, should I use those phrases, you know? Should I take a deep breath when I, my mind's distracted and then I come back to the body and come back to the breath? Is it helpful to take a deep breath? And what we want to do is find out, like, experiment with these different skillful means you're hearing during these six weeks. So you have a sense, like, when to use this medicine? When is it skillful to use this other medicine? Because every medicine has some side effects. So if every time you can't, your mind is distracted and then you come back, you get in the habit of having to take a deep breath, that's not helpful. But every once in a while especially if you've been really lost in thought for five or ten minutes or longer, then you're going to be sort of discombobulated when you come back to the present moment. And it might be useful, actually, to open the eyes, straighten the spine a little bit, as if you're starting a brand new set. Take a couple deep breaths to settle back in. But you don't want to make it a habit, because then you're going to do it every time when you don't need that medicine, right? And it's the same thing with the phrases. I don't know if everybody heard Scott's but sometimes when I'm giving guided meditation instructions, I'll say, 
you know, as you're aware of the breath coming in and aware of the breath going out, you can use little meditation words or meditation phrases. So, for example, you could repeat the word knowing as you breathe in and releasing as you breathe out. Or you could even say to yourself, uh, aware of the whole body as you breathe in, letting the body be. So it could be a longer phrase even. And those phrases are good, can be good medicine, especially if the mind is really distractible at that sit for some reason, really superficial, really, you know, whatever. So it's like you're bringing in a Dharma coach, kind of your own guided meditation, right? It could be really useful. But you don't want to train your mind to be dependent on that technique, or really any technique. But you don't want to be afraid of using techniques when they'd be helpful. Week five, we'll do loving-kindness practice and compassion practice. And it's really useful to be able to bring in the attitude of kindness and compassion, joy, equanimity, strategically when we need it. And so we, we'll do, and anybody who's serious about this path of awakening should do systematic loving-kindness practice. So then when you need to bring it in as a skillful means, it's already, you already know what you're doing. Same thing with the phrases. Same. That's why we do some of these techniques. Even when we don't need them, we do them. So we learn like how it works. What is the effect on the mind? And then you just build up your sort of medicine chest of skillful means. That's a phrase we use a lot in Buddhism. The whole path is just a series of skillful means. So we're developing this array of techniques that affect the mind. Because we need this array of skills in order to keep the mind in balance. Because if our mind is clear, balanced, relaxed, then that mind is going to wake up. It's going to see what it hasn't seen about the nature of the mind. It's going to see how the mind gets into states of stress and suffering and how the mind becomes free. We don't have to get to freedom. We need to cultivate habits of balance and clarity and continuity of awareness. And the insight and the freedom will come from that. Because the only thing that keeps us repeating states of stress, you know, acting in ways that cause the heart to get all tight and reactive and heavy, is because we're not aware. We're not, we're superficial and distracted and in denial. So, to counter that, we cultivate clarity and balance and stability and continuity of awareness. And then the whole world opens up. What could keep, you know, what would keep the mind from seeing things as they are? And once the mind sees that it's holding a hot pan, it lets go. You don't have to, like, have a special teaching. Like when you, you notice when they are smelling your skin burning, you should, then you just move your hands apart and the pan, No. It's just a natural thing that happens. The mind abandons what is unskillful. We just have to see it clearly. This is not helping. This is not skillful. Try being clearly aware uh, when you're gossiping in that balanced, non-judging way or when you're venting, when you're blaming somebody or hating somebody. Try being clearly aware, intimately present, not attached, And you'll see you cannot maintain unskillful states of mind in awareness. This is, I actually wanted to make this point. 
So I'll just do it now. Um, because it's really a good thing to check out in your life. When you bring this balanced attention, what we call mindful awareness, when you bring that to wholesome states, what is the effect? So let's say you're, you just have a very natural generosity of heart. Just for whatever reasons, it arose, and there it is. And then you have the wherewithal to be mindfully aware at that time. So you're, and because the, genero- the generous heart is the predominant experience, and your mindful awareness is not, oh, generosity is like that. So what happens to a wholesome state like generosity or kindness or forgiveness or patience or interest, any of the four parts of the acronym, clearly recognizing, allowing, accepting, interested, investigating, not attached. What happens to one of these wholesome qualities when the mind is clearly aware in an ongoing, balanced way? Any guess? Or from your experience, anybody know? Yeah, it gets reinforced. It increases. It strengthens. Now, you probably have a clue. When we bring that same balanced attention to being irritated, being impatient, being angry, being bored, being envious, being in denial, distracted, what happens to the unwholesome states? Yeah, they get weakened for sure. And some of them pop or just disappear with that balanced attention when it's really strong. You'll see that. It's like all of a sudden you're aware the mind's been spinning in some unwholesome way and for whatever reason mindfulness re-arises and sees it as it is without the judgment, just sees the activity and feels the unpleasant contraction that goes with that unwholesome activity. And it's like that unwholesome activity is no longer being fed when there's mindful awareness. And because it's not being fed, and what feeds the unwholesome tendencies? Identification and attachment is the fuel. Or what in Buddhism we call wrong attention, unskillful attention to these unwholesome states, taking them personally causes them to be fed and they keep going. But when we see them in a balanced way, they pass away, they fall away. It may take a while because some of them will have a head of steam and so we might need to be aware of the aversion, the fear, aware of it, aware of it. We may think we're being aware of it but we might be afraid of it or we may be aware of it in order to make it go away. But that's not mindful awareness. That's some subtle controlling. And when you're controlling something, it's because you're identified with it. We only control things that we take personally. And if we're controlling it, we're feeding it. We're reinforcing it. But when we're really in that balanced, observing, witnessing, non-judging, intimate state, remember, when we say observing, it doesn't mean from a watchtower way over here. Mindful awareness is observing right in the middle of it. That's an important distinction because a lot of times when we use words like witness or observe, we think about from a distance. It has a feeling of distance, but that's because of the non-attachment. But we're really right in the middle, right in the middle, but not attached. That's what mindful awareness does, and it will cause those unwholesome states to go away. And so that's really what we're doing. You know, all of the skillful means or ways of reinforcing the wholesome qualities of mind 
and undermining the unwholesome. And when you start getting pretty clear of the different skillful means, you'll see they're just different ways to support the continuity of mindful awareness. So like even when we bring compassion in, it's just like my balanced awareness is being tinged by aversion. So I've got this technique of bringing compassion in. All we're doing is bringing the mind into balance. You might think, oh, I'm doing compassion meditation practice. But what we're really doing is learning how to reestablish that stability, that clarity, that non-judging, non-fearful awareness. But we need a lot of different techniques because sometimes we're falling out of balance in this way. Sometimes we're falling out of balance in this way. You know, So there are many ways to get out of balance. So we need many techniques to help bring the mind back into balance. Make sense? And so as you're hearing different things from me and other people in the room, you know, as they're sharing their practice, then that might, oh yeah, I, I've kind of done that too. And then that will make, oh yeah, that's, a, that's one of those skillful means. That's something in my medicine ch- chest to pull out at different times. But play with the stuff in your medicine chest so when you need it, you have some skill with it. So as you hear me talk about things, then when you go home, play with it. Oh, yeah, let me try that. Let me try naming my experience, like you were talking about, Maria, right? Maria mentioned that. Let me just try that. Maybe I don't need it right now, but I'm going to learn how it works and what the effect is. Or, you know, Scott mentioned about taking a deep breath, right? Or from your comment, you know, about the, the movement, you know, maybe I'll, I'll just use that perception, like whatever I'm aware of, the breath, I'm going to notice the breath as a, as a ceaseless movement instead of a thing. Right? Just like a flow of sensation. No beginning, no end. Oh yeah, that really brings it into view. I really can be more intimate. I, I realize more of that non-attachment when I see the breath as the activity, as a free flow of nature. But when it's my breath, then I, I have all this, so i got to do it right. That doesn't help. So there's all these different things that we heard, probably ten different little techniques that you can use in your practice. Now next week, just to give you a heads up so you can bring in some good sharing, we're going to be especially paying attention to talking together about obstacles. So it's like you sit for 30 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever you can on a day, and it's like every time the mind loses the thread of mindful, the continuity of mindfulness, it's like wisdom wants to know, well, what happened there, honey? You know, what bait did I take? What was the hook? What was the seductive hook that caused the mind to get lost in thought or get in this emotional reaction or whatever? Now, you can notice it in the moment or even after the sit. Like, oh yeah, what what were the hooks there? And you'll start seeing some regular visitors that kind of throw you off, whether it's sleepiness. And you can start looking for the five hindrances. Sleepiness is one of them. Right, so we have wanting, the mind wanting something to happen, wanting, you know, attracted to some nice experience, aversion or ill will, not wanting something to happen, too little energy, uh, sleepiness, dullness of mind, too much en- energy, restlessness and worry, and the doubt. Now, some doubt is quite good, but this is the kind of circular doubt that doesn't kind of you just get lost in your own. Doubt. You're not. It's not the doubt that kind of leads to investigation. That's a wholesome kind of doubt. Yeah, I don't really know. 
so I'm going to be more humble and I'm going to pay attention. That's good doubt. But the doubt like where you think, thinking about it, it's going to help, doesn't it? <laughs> so when, when you're sort of assessing what interrupts your practice, you might just see if you can categorize, categorize in the terms of the five hindrances. But you might come up with your own list. That's okay, too. But we'll check in about that after our sit. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.